Our Lord, we thank you again for the life of Stephen and for the message that he had and for those patriarchs that we are studying. Lord, just keep our minds focused on that right now, that we would hear from you this morning the word of God, and it would be life-changing to us, Lord. Use your servant Catherine to glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Nice cold day out there, isn't it? But I'm glad it isn't icy or snowy. Remember last year we missed four Tuesdays? Keep praying. We haven't missed one yet, and I hope we don't. All right, lesson number 21 in our study of the early church from the book of Acts. I want you to find two places this morning. Would you open up to Acts 7, and we'll be looking at verses 23 to 29 in that chapter, Stephen's sermon. This is subtitled, Moses, Two Acts of Deliverance. And then I want you to also position yourselves so you can flip over there quickly to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And I also want you to find Deuteronomy 18.15. 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. I did have, at, on Monday we have a big board behind me. And I write things on it, and it really helps the women. I wish we had some place I could write here. But, um, and I don't know how to do PowerPoint. Pathetic old me. But it takes me enough time to do the lesson, and I'm not going to fiddle around with technology. <laughs> but, all right. Moses' life. Moses' life. And, of course, that's what Stephen is talking about now. We've been through... Abraham and Joseph, and now we, you know, I never knew when I studied Acts I would be teaching the Old Testament, but I'm so glad that we are, because I, I was, for years I've been wanting to study, as I told you, the life of Joseph, and we got to do that in a jet tour, didn't we? And one day we studied the whole life of Joseph, and for years I have been wanting to do a study on typology, the types of, in Scripture, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have collected books, I have a whole shelf of books on typology because I just think it's so thrilling. And I've wanted to teach that as a subject, maybe for a year or two. And here the Lord is allowing me not only to do the life of Joseph, but we're in, we're in a study of types. We're going to see that again today with the life of Moses. Moses' life was a life of antitheses or a life of paradoxes. Although he was the son of slaves, he was also the son of royalty because he had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Although he was born in a poor house, yet he was raised in a luxurious palace. He was educated to lead armies, but instead he became a shepherd over literal sheep and human sheep. What did he do in the wilderness for 40 years? He led around a bunch of stubborn sheep, didn't he? <laughs> he had the best education that the world had to offer there in Egypt, but his faith in God is what gave him wisdom. He was raised to live in a city. He was raised to live city life there in Memphis, but spent 80 years of his life in the desert or in the wilderness. He was the mightiest warrior, and yet he was the meekest man. He felt hampered in his speech with men, and yet he talked to God face to face. He had been tempted with the pleasures of the world, but he chose to endure the hardships of virtue and faith. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh, but an ambassador of God. He carried the staff of a shepherd, but he had the power of the Almighty. He was the giver of the law, but he was a picture of grace. 
In his lifetime, we've talked about this, he never once set foot in the land of Israel. But he was privileged to set foot there after his death. Had you ever thought of that? He had spoken with the great I am that I am. Where? On Mount Sinai. But where is that? In the land of Israel? No. It's in the Sinai Peninsula. But after his death, he again got to speak to the great I am in Israel. Where? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? The Lord let his veils, glory shine through his veiled flesh, and he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. So Moses did get to the promised land after all. Well, I am not trafficking in my own imagination gone wild, which I'm really good at doing. I could do that, but I'm not doing that when I say that Moses was a prophetic picture in type of the Messiah who was and is Jesus Christ. Moses himself gave us permission to say that he was a picture type, a prophetic type of the Lord Jesus, the prophet to come. This is where I want you to look at Deuteronomy 18.15 because this is what we're going to be talking about all day. This was a prophecy not only spoken by Moses, but it was written by Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, and this is Moses speaking, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee, and he is speaking to Israel, he will raise up unto thee, Israel, a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. What is Moses saying there? He's saying there will be a prophet who will come. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to come from the midst of you, Israel. And when he comes, how are you going to know what he, who he is? I'll tell you how. He's going to be like me. He's going to be like me. And you are to listen to him. So Moses himself gives us permission to say that he was a picture type of Christ, the coming Christ. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, his sermon also demonstrates Moses as a type of Christ. And later on, the Apostle Paul will do the same thing. Now, Stephen spent a longer portion of his sermon to the Sanhedrin council on Moses than he did with either Abraham or Joseph. He was pretty brief with his history of Abraham and also with Joseph. Why did he spend more time on Moses? Well, number one, he had been accused of blaspheming Moses, hadn't he? He had not been accused of blaspheming Abraham or, or Joseph. Moses also was the person that they, the council and the Jewish people, were most concerned about. In fact, his false accusers had even put Moses before God, hadn't they? Back there in chapter 6, verse 11. Their entire lives were built upon Moses and the Mosaic law, sadly often at the expense of their faith in God. Third reason Stephen spent a good deal of his time on his selective summation of the 340-year stages of Moses' life is because he's going to do what he did with Joseph. He's going to do the whole thing over again. He's going to preach Christ by reviewing certain major aspects of Moses' life that made it particularly obvious that Mo Jesus was the one who fit the picture perfectly as being the prophet like unto him. So he's going to preach Jesus again without ever mentioning Jesus' name. 
He's going to preach Jesus through the life of Moses. And we've already seen that, even in the circumstances surrounding his birth, right? Well, also, as Stephen pictured the two advents of Christ, the two comings of Christ by the three-phased life of Joseph, didn't he do that? What was the three-phased life of Joseph? Well, first of all, we had Joseph's first visit, where he was, the first time he was sent by the father out to his brothers, and he was rejected. He was rejected by his brothers, and then he was removed from his brothers. He was separated from them while raising up seed with his Gentile bride. So he was rejected, then he was removed. In the third phase of his life, he was reunited with his brothers and accepted by them as their deliverer. They bow before them, him. Well, he does the same thing in the three-phased life of Moses. It's a lot simpler to do because Moses had three 40-year stages of his life. What was the first stage? Well, he too was rejected by his Hebrew brothers on his first visit out to them. We'll be looking at that this morning. Then he too was separated from his brothers. He was removed from his brothers, his Jewish brothers, not his literal blood brothers, but his Jewish brothers, while raising up seed with his Gentile bride. And then third, he was reunited with Israel, and the second time he was accepted by her as their deliverer. And that was on his second visit, just like with Joseph, it was on his second visit. So you see what he's doing? The two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was refused, rejected the first time, wasn't he? But when he comes again, Israel will accept him. Now, at the same time that spirit-filled Stephen was accomplishing all these different things at once, and you'd have to be spirit-filled to be doing all that. That's just amazing that he was accomplishing so many things at one time. He's doing all that, and yet he's also developing his own case against the Jews, saying by his clever comparison of history with their present situation, he is saying that they, they were actually the ones, not him and not the other Christians, they were the ones who rejected Moses. And now they would be horrified to hear that, and they are by the time we get to the end of the sermon. They're horrified, you know, and be like, what? How in the world can you say that? Did they not practically venerate Moses um, and the law? Wouldn't they vehemently say that out of all the people in the whole wide world, they had the inside track on Moses and, and his law, and they knew how to fulfill it to the pleasure of God? Kind of represented by that Pharisee in the temple who was praying to himself. He thought he was praying to God, but he's really praying to himself, boasting about Oh God, you are so fortunate to have a wonderful man like me who so gracious, wonderfully fills, fulfills the law. That's how, you know, they, so for Stephen to say, you're really the ones who reject, you're really the ones who blaspheme Moses, they would absolutely be horrified. But they were guilty of rejecting Moses because they did not obey him in the most important issue of all. You do not honor a person when you shut out what they have to say. And that's what they had done. Moses had told them to hearken to the prophet like unto him when he came. And they had not done that, had they? Instead of listening to Jesus, who was in so many ways like Moses, as we'll see as we continue with this typology, but they did not hearken to that prophet like unto Moses when he came. Just as their forefathers had thrust out Moses on his first attempt to deliver them 
They had done the same with Jesus. And ever since, what had they been doing? They had been stopping up their ears to his words, to Jesus' words, still spoken to them through his spokesmen, the apostles. Weren't they trying to shut up the apostles? Don't you dare speak or teach. Didn't they even throw them in prison and beat them up? And what are they doing to Stephen now? They're listening to him, but when he gets to the end, they stop up their ears. They're angry, and they stone him to death. So they didn't listen to Moses in the one thing, the one most important thing he said to do. When the prophet like me comes, the Messiah, you are to listen to him. Now, the Jewish people had for centuries, probably ever since Moses spoke Deuteronomy 18.15, they had known he was talking about the coming Messiah. They knew that that was a reference to the coming Messiah. And that's why, after the Lord performed his miraculous feeding of the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, which was probably more like feeding 15,000, it was just 5,000 men, do you know what the people said after that miracle? Now, they'd already heard the great Sermon on the Mount, so they knew he was mighty in words, and now he was mighty in deeds. So here's what the people said. This is in John 6, 14. This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. You see what they were doing? They knew that it was the prophet like unto Moses. They had a mighty Moses among them again, so they got it. And there was also the time when Jesus stood up in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he said these words, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. And drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's in John 7, verses 37, 38. Now, the people there listening to him make that invitation, they instantly, the Jewish people, they knew their Bibles. They knew that he was referencing the miracle of the rock of Horeb in the wilderness. Back in Exodus 17, the uh, Israelites are following Moses. They're in the wilderness, and they are very, they're getting very, very thirsty. They're thirsting for water, and what are they doing? What they're very good at doing, murmuring. They're murmuring against Moses for having delivered them from Egypt. A lot of gratitude he got, right? They're murmuring, and they, they, they're, they're so thirsty that they get angry enough that they actually pick up stones and they want to stone him to death. Did the Lord Jesus encounter that? He sure did. And so um, Moses cries out to God. And God answers him with very specific instructions. He says that Moses is to take up his rod, his staff, and he's to take it to the rock in Horeb and smite it. And then what would happen? Water would gush out for the people to drink. That's in Exodus 17.6. So you see, when Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles stood up and invited the spiritually dry and thirsty people of his day, and they were spiritually thirsty, you would be too, living under the reign of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when he offered them living water, you know, offered them to come to him and drink, promising that <clears throat> out of his belly would flow rivers of living water, they knew instantly that he was referring to that incident of Moses striking the rock. And that is why they said, right after he gave that invitation, the people said this, Of a truth, this is that prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. So you see what I'm telling you? They understood Deuteronomy 18.15. 
They knew Moses was speaking about the coming Messiah, like unto him. Now let me explain the prophetic picture type that God was presenting in that miracle of the rock. Moses was to obey God's command to smite the rock in order to show forth what would occur when the Messiah did come. He would come as he did. He would come to a thirsty people living in a spiritually dry land, people who desperately needed a spiritual rock out of whom would come the living water of life. And what is the living water of life symbolic of? John tells us in John 7, 49, the Holy Spirit. Now, who was that rock? What was the rock a picture of? Paul tells us. We don't have to guess. Paul tells us that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the rock was Christ. The flowing water, the living water was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The rock of Horeb was a picture of Christ. The people of Israel understood Jesus' reference, his reference event of the water coming out of the rock. And so they connected him. When he heard him say, come unto me and drink, they connected him verbally with the prophet Messiah like unto Moses. However, what they missed... What they completely missed was the prophecy message of the smitten rock itself. The smiting of the rock, the rock with Moses' rod of judgment spoke of Calvary. Spoke of Calvary. Where Jesus was smitten by the hand of God's judgment for the sins of all the thirsty people of this world. Now, the rod of judgment should have been smitten on the people. They were the sinful ones, rebelling and grumbling and mumbling. That rod should have been smitten on them. But Christ took their place. He was smitten of God in their place and in our place, Isaiah 53, 4. And then, once he was smitten, the Holy Spirit could then be offered freely to all who by faith merely came to the rock to drink, right? It's offered freely. That's the very last invitation of the entire Bible. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17, it says the, the bride and the spirit say, come, come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will. I, I do not believe in limited atonement whatsoever. It's for all men. He died once for all. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus did it all. All we have to do is drink, right? It's freely given. We just have to drink it. Well, here then is a warning lesson to you and I about how seriously God takes prophetic picture types of his son that are given in the Old Testament. He takes them very seriously. That's why typology is a serious study. He takes them seriously. Do you remember why the Lord God did not allow Moses and his brother Aaron to enter into the promised land? Do you remember why they weren't allowed? (laughs) Yes. It was because Moses and Aaron angrily, I mean, they were angry at all that murmuring going on. And so they were angry at the people, and they said, Here now, ye rebels, (laughs) must we fetch you water out of this rock? Hmm. 
And then what did Moses do? He hit it twice. Now you have to take Numbers 20, verses 10 and 11, this will be in your notes when you get them on email, and Exodus 17, 6, to see how he disobeyed God. But because he had been told by God to speak to the rock first, and then to smite it, but only to smite it once, and he had disobeyed. And God said that his disobedience was actually disbelief because he did not sanctify God before the people. You see, to the people who observed that event of Moses hitting that rock, boom, boom, to the people it looked more like the gushing water was Moses and Aaron's doing rather than God's doing. Because didn't they say, must we fetch out of the, the water out of this rock? The event was to typify, it was to picture the real smiting of the rock. God's son, which would be God's doing, not man's doing. Who put Jesus up on that cross? Was it man? No, it pleased God to bruise his son. Remember when Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power at all over me except it be given you from above. It looked like man. I mean, man is still responsible for what he did, but God put his son there. God smit his son. Is that the right tense? Smote. <laughs> Smote his son. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. After, you know, he said, it's expedient for you that I, you know, must suffer and die and return to my father so you can receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. That was also the miraculous doing of God, not the work of man, but God. Furthermore, the one who was the fulfillment of the rock of Horeb would only be smitten once. There will never, ever, 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 ever be another Calvary. He was only smitten once. There's absolutely no reason for the rock to be smitten again. It says in Hebrews 10.10, we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And you see Moses ruined, he ruined the type when in anger he hit that rock twice. You see, God takes his types very seriously, doesn't he? That one seemingly small, you know, most people would say, well, that doesn't seem very important. He takes, he takes obedience to him very seriously. Think back to the garden, just one fruit, you know, one fruit. Did all this? Yes. Yes, it did. One seemingly small mistake by Moses and with Aaron at his side, and it kept both men out of the promised land. What if Noah, let's just give another example. What if Noah, he'd been given specific instructions about how to build the ark. What if he had built two doors to the ark? One to get in, maybe one to get out. One on this side, one on that side. Oh, he'd be in big trouble too, wouldn't he? <laughs> because he would ruin the type that God was giving, that there's only one way of safety from the judgment of, of God on the whole world. And Jesus is the way. And he is the door, one door. So Moses, you know, it, he's, very, he's very specific and he's very strict about his types. Um, and that's why you also have to be very careful, not only with types, but with verbal predictive prophecies. And so many liberals just play around with God's prophecies at their own great danger, taking something like Isaiah 7.14, and saying, ah, he didn't really mean that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Now, he's just a young woman. Mm -mm -mm. Be careful. 
Well, back to Stephen's sermon. That is what we're studying. <laughs> Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Because Moses had told Israel to hearken unto the coming prophet like unto him, the Jews, therefore, should have realized and thereby concluded that Moses wasn't the end of things. The Mosaic law was not the end of God's revelation to them. Moses had said, when the prophet comes, listen to him. He was to speak to them further revelation from God to which they were to listen. So how would they know him when he came? And how would they know which one to listen to? Well, it was very simple. Moses made it very simple. He said that he would be like him. And again, as I said, without speaking Jesus' name, Stephen would preach Jesus to the high court of Israel, and this way he does it by way of the life of Moses. And he would make the case that they, not him, not the Christians, they had taken the sacred writings of Moses and made them of no effect, which is the definition of blasphemy. How? Well, by willfully ignoring the obvious similarities between Moses and Jesus, and willfully refusing to hearken unto him, unto Jesus. Now, I was talking about some of the books I have at home on typology, and one of them, which is about that thick, is Types of Christ in the Old Testament. And it's written by Charles H. Spurgeon. Ever hear of him? You know, I am completely convinced that one of the reasons we are studying the book of Acts in the 21st century church is to learn how the first century church turned, literally turned their world upside down for Jesus Christ. And Stephen is telling us how they did it. And it was by types, by showing the Jewish people all the pictures of Christ that were right there before them for all those centuries. And I think that's what we should be doing in our church today because I have heard enough feedback from you all to know that this is what gets us excited, doesn't it? I mean, it does. It makes the Bible come alive. You say, wow, that was there all the time, and I never saw that. Well, Charles Spurgeon, smart guy, he got that years ago. All these books I have collected are by guys that lived 100, 200 years ago. They got it. What's the matter with us? Are you hearing typology in your churches? No, see, I think that's a big problem. We're using, losing our young people. Wouldn't this make our young people come alive? Say, oh, I've had those lessons in Sunday school, but I never saw that. I mean, it's exciting to me. Um, so Charles Spurgeon says this. You know, if there was one way, even if the Jewish religious rulers, if they ignored all the other ways in which Jesus was like Moses, and there were many, 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 but if they ignored all of those, there was one way that they could not avoid deep in their souls, knowing that Jesus was like unto Moses. And that was by way of his mighty deeds and words. Isn't that the first thing that Stephen said to the council about Moses? That he was mighty in deeds and in words. Now here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, quote, Moses is described as a prophet mighty in words and deeds, and it is singular that there never was another prophet mighty in word and deed until Jesus came. Moses not only spoke with matchless power, but wrought miracles. He did, didn't he? Lots of miracles. The ten plagues, the opening of the Red Sea, the striking of the rock. Or only, um, okay, Moses wrought matchless miracles. Um, in you, you shall never find another prophet who did both. Other prophets who spoke well wrought no miracles, 
or only here and there. Whilst those who wrought miracles, such as Elijah and Elisha, have left us but few words that they spoke. When you come to our Lord Jesus, however, you find lip and heart working together. You cannot tell in which he is the more marvelous, in his speech or in his miracles. Never man spoke like this man, but certainly never man wrought such marvels as Jesus did. He far exceeds Moses and all of the prophets put together. End of quote. So they should have recognized who Jesus was, if by nothing else, his mighty words and deeds. Now, in our previous lesson, we had looked at Israel's dilemma in Egypt when a new pharaoh who knew not Joseph came to the throne and became greatly concerned about the rapid growth of the Hebrew shepherds living in the land, in the land of Egypt. And after little success in reducing their reproduction, by way of his heavy burdens that he put upon them, probably taxes and then slavery, and then he tried to cut them off by the, with the midwives. When all of those things failed, he gave an edict to all the Egyptian people, to all his citizens, he gave an edict to cast out any newborn Hebrew baby boys who were born, to cast them into the Nile, feed them to the crocodiles. And it was under the edict of this satanically inspired plan to keep the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 from being born that Amram and Jochebed, the parents of little baby Joachim, by faith, we are told in Hebrews 11, determined to hide their newborn son for how many months? three months in their home. And then when keeping him hidden in the home became too dangerous for the child's sake, Jochebed placed him in a waterproof ark and put him in the very place you wouldn't think a Jewish mother would ever put him, there in the Nile River with the crocodiles, the, one, the place of death. That's where she put him. And she entrusted him, his care to the Lord, who alone could deliver him from death. And did the Lord deliver him from death? He sure did. He had a special plan for this child. So little Joachim was providentially drawn from the bloodied Nile. It was bloodied because of all the death of the baby boys. It didn't look like blood. It would when Moses got his rod and struck it in one of those plague judgments. But by the bloodied arm, not the bloodied arms, but he was raised out of the bloodied Nile by the very arms of the evil Pharaoh's daughter. What is that if it isn't? Providence, the providence of God at work. And then she did exceeding abundantly above anything that Jochebed could have ever thought because she actually paid Jochebed to nourish and nurture her own son during his critical childhood years. And then when he was weaned, I don't know, two, three, four, five years old, she took him to the princess to be raised as the princess's son. She was going to groom him, maybe, perhaps even to be, the next pharaoh, but she was childless. And so he was raised in the palace itself, and the princess renamed the child, what? Moses, which means because I drew him out of the water. The one drawn out of the water would one day part the water. The one drawn out of the water would one day draw his people out of Egypt. 
And so she called him Moses. And ironically, the people of Israel, who for centuries looked down their long noses at all the Gentiles of the world with disdain, call their greatest hero by his Gentile name. Isn't that just (laughs) really laughable? It is when you think about it. Moses is his Gentile name. Now, the killing of the Hebrew seed, think about this. Okay, this this is a good one. The killing of the Hebrew seed, you know, the sons, Seemed like a good plan. It seemed like a crafty, wise plan to Pharaoh. Crafty way to crush that infant nation of the Israelites that was quickly multiplying in his land. Now think about what Stephen is actually saying. You have to read his sermon between the lines. But think about what he is saying to the Pharaohs of his day the rulers over the Israelites. They, just like Pharaoh, were even at that very hour in the first stage of attempting to stop the fast multiplication of the church in their land. Isn't that what they were concerned about? These Christians, this sect of the Nazarene, they're growing too fast. No matter how they tried to stop them from growing, what happened? All their efforts failed, and they just kept, they were adding originally, and then they began multiplying, and they couldn't stop it. It was just as evil, and it would prove to be just as ineffectual as what the Egyptians had attempted to do with young Israel. See, the whole thing is being played all over again. In spite of all the persecution of the young church, which began with force, really, when Stephen got to the end of his sermon. The Jews would discover, just as Pharaoh discovered with Israel, the Jews would discover that the church of Jesus Christ would continue to increase and multiply. Right? Actually, by persecuting them, they went out from there and they just reached the uttermost part of the world. Why is that? Well, because, I mean, why would it never be crushed? is because the one upon whom our faith is based literally did rise from the dead. Not just symbolically from a basket on the Nile River, but literally he rose from the dead. So there's no way. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Amen? Amen. Well, the account of Moses' first 40 years ended with an incident that happened right at the tail end of those 40 years. And that is the incident incident that actually catapulted him out of Egypt and over into the land of the Midianites. You know who the Midianites were? They were the descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah. After Sarah died, he was an old man and he was taken care of by a young woman named Keturah. And he, had, he married her and he had children from her and one of them was Midian. And so the Midianites came from, they were part hmm, Jewish, I guess you could, and I, I don't know, Abraham wasn't really a Jew, but they were part Hebrew, and they were part Gentile. You know, Abraham should have stopped when Sarah died, don't you agree? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, we have an expression in Greek for that, vromikos gerros, and I won't tell you what it means. <laughs> You can come to me later. All right, anyway, so now we're going to look at that incident that catapulted Moses out of 
Egypt and into the desert. We're going to look at the first visit of Moses in verses 23 to 28, and then also I'm going to have you flip over to Exodus 2. All right, we'll get a fuller account over there. So let's look at chapter 7. Now we're getting into our lesson for today. Um, Verse 23, it says, And when he, Stephen is talking, and the he is Moses, when he, Moses, was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove. Two of them were bickering to Hebrews, and he would have set them at one again. In other words, he would have been a peacemaker between them, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? All right, now let's get the fuller account over in Exodus chapter 2. Look with me at verses 11 to 15. And keep your hand over in Acts 7 as well. Exodus 2, starting at verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to them that did the wrong, him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. And then he goes into the land of Midian. We'll get back to that later on. Okay, keep your place there and you can go back to Exodus. Or go back between the two, whatever you want to do. We learned that when Moses was full 40 years, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. It was not a thought that came into his mind. Rather, it was a yearning that came into his heart. It would take a visit to his brethren over there in Goshen, where the Israelites lived, because it was a bit of a distance from the palace. Not too far. I had my husband look it up. Now, the palace probably would have been in Memphis, which is where modern-day Cairo is located. Goshen would have maybe been the the border of, of Goshen, would have maybe taken about 20 minutes to walk there. But I'm sure Moses had a chariot, so maybe it took him less time. (laughs) But anyway, he had to visit them. Now remember, Moses had been raised by his mother, Jochebed, and his father during those influential years as a small child. And it also can be suspected that he had continual contact with his family during the next 40 years. I don't know when his parents died, but when he is with Aaron and Miriam, they're very familiar. I think the princess was kind. I think that he saw his family on a regular basis. And therefore, he would have learned from his parents. They would have instilled into Moses the truth of God and how he, Moses, had providentially been delivered for some future purpose in the life of their people. They would have told Moses 
and their other two children of God's covenant promises given to Abraham. All the Jewish parents passed these things down to their children. He would have learned about the promises to Abraham and how God had predicted that Abraham, his descendants, would be encountering exactly what they were then experiencing, that they would be sojourners in a strange land where they would be entreated with evil for how many years? 400 years, and now they're getting close to the end of those 400 years. And Moses would have heard how the Lord God had promised to deliver Abraham's descendants from that bondage. And he also would have learned how God had placed the patriarch Joseph in a palace of a previous pharaoh, providentially, you know, taking him from the prison and put him in the palace in order, you know, he even put him ahead of time over there in Egypt so that he could deliver his people later on in his life. And hearing these truths from his parents, Moses would have realized that he too had been providentially as a child snatched from death and elevated to a position in another pharaoh's palace. Why? Well, I mean, it all falls together and makes sense, right? It would be to deliver his brethren, not from starvation as Joseph had done, but this time from slavery. And so I think that even as a young child, it was, it was obvious to him why he had been snatched from the Nile and actually, you know, a slave and raised in Pharaoh's palace. It was obvious. Joseph, God had done the same thing with Joseph. And so I think he understood this even as a child. Just as Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he already knew what his business was. Remember when his parents frantically are looking for him and they return to Jerusalem, they run their way back home to Nazareth and they find out he's not in the caravan. They run back to Jerusalem and they're searching everywhere for him and they find him in the temple, 12 years old. And he says to them, wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know that? And you know what the next verse says? They understood not. That's amazing. They didn't understand. They, you know, he supposed that they should. So did Moses probably at a very young age, realized that he had a divine purpose, which was to deliver his people. And we know this because Stephen very pointedly said to the council, Moses, look at verse 25, back 7. Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. Wouldn't the Jewish people have also understood that? I mean, he's one of us. He should be dead. He was born during that edict, and yet here he is in the palace. Ah, this is like Joseph all over again. Abraham was promised we'd be delivered. The time is approaching. He, he supposed that they would have gotten it, but they didn't. They didn't get it. At 40 years of age, which is the prime of his time when he would have been a leader in the court of Pharaoh, Moses voluntarily, he's a full-grown man, he's not a child, He's a full-grown man, prime of life, and if you're 40, you're in the prime. <laughs> he, he voluntarily left the palace in order to visit his brothers, his people, not out of curiosity. He didn't go there to, out of curiosity over their plight, but he went there because of kinship. As their kinsman redeemer, he, like Christ, was not ashamed to call them brethren. He wasn't too high and mighty in the palace to call them his brothers. He had compassion for them. Exodus 2.11 says that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. That speaks of looking with compassion. He had his eyes on them, not to be their great leader, 
but to be their emancipator, to alleviate their suffering. And in this way, too, Moses was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Matthew wrote of Jesus, he says, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they fainted. And the word fainted means because they were fallen down from exhaustion. And that's what Moses saw. His people were fainting. They were just exhausted. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that when Moses was come to years, 40, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He could have enjoyed a lot of sin there in the palace. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. You see, he saw Christ. He, he didn't see, well, he would see him in the burning bush, but he saw him with eyes of faith. He knew the promised Savior was coming, the Christ, but he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Didn't the Lord himself voluntarily relinquish the riches and the treasures of his kingly palace to be made of no reputation down here on earth and to even take upon himself the form of a servant? So when Moses visited his brethren and saw one of them suffering the injustice of a cruel Egyptian taskmaster, he took up the position of defense for his enslaved brother, and he smote the Egyptian. Now this is exactly why Christ left the throne room of heaven. It was to identify with his people on earth to take our place as our kinsman redeemer and smite the cruel world Egyptian taskmaster who has enslaved us for millennium. And who is he? Satan. However, as Stephen reminded the first century Jews, the response of those Moses attempted to deliver on his first visit to them was that they understood not. He supposed that they would, but they didn't. They didn't understand. As even Moses, uh, Mary and Joseph didn't understand. Now, of all people, wouldn't you think they would have understood? But it says after he said, don't you know I would be about my father's business? It says they didn't understand. They didn't get it yet. Did his men ever get it? No, not until after the resurrection. As many in the Lord's life who should have understood did not understand his mission, so Moses found that those he expected to fully understand his role as their deliverer did not. They didn't get it. So Moses smote the taskmaster. You know, he looked, his eyes went back and forth. He saw that there was no Egyptians looking, and so he smote him, and he hit his body in the sand. Now, this was a foretaste. This was just a preview of what God, through Moses, would do 40 years later in judgment upon all the Egyptians who had oppressed his people. He would do this through the plagues, he would do this through the last plague, which was the death of all the firstborns. That's a lot of people in Egypt. How many of you, if you'd been in Egypt at that time, would have perished? How many of you are firstborns? I am. I would have perished. Firstborn one in your family? How many, here's a better question. How many of you are secondborns? And I don't mean in your family. I mean born again. Yay! That's the only way that the angel of death ever passes over us, right? 
And also, this is what God, this is a foretaste of God would do through the hand of Moses. You know, Moses buried that guy in the sand. But guess what? Next time, all the Egyptian, the whole army, they would be buried where? Under the sea. <laughs> Under the Red Sea. The waters of the Red Sea. Moses smote one taskmaster on his first visit. They would all be smitten one way or another on his second visit. The one like unto him has come already from wherever we are in history and where Stephen was in history even. He has come and he has given the crushing blow to the head of the evil world taskmaster. Where did he do that? On Calvary. And proven by the empty tomb. On his second visit... He will smite all of the world's evil taskmasters. Praise the Lord. And how will he do it, Revelation 19? With just the sword of the word of his mouth. It says in Psalm 2, 9, He shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, the next day, Moses went back. You know, first day he went out, saw the Egyptian mistreating one of his brothers, and he smote him, hit him in the sand. The next day he goes back. And this time he finds two Hebrews, his brothers, brothers, um, bickering, with the, you know, striving among, among themselves. And he asks them very politely, very calmly, Sirs, you know, your brothers, why are you fighting with each other? Now here again is how Christ is like unto Moses. He not only came to be the deliverer from Egypt, but to bring peace to his people while yet in Egypt. He sought to bring reconciliation between brothers. Now when the Lord came to earth on his first visit, not only were his people under the oppression of this world's evil taskmaster, Satan, and they were even under the oppression of the Romans, but they were busily bickering among themselves, weren't they? Think about it. You have the Sadducees. And you have the Pharisees, you've got the Zealots, you've got the Herodians, you've got the, the uh, Essenes, and they're all beep, 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 against each other. You know, they all got their little issues with one another. And then you've got the Hebrew Jews who thought of themselves more highly than the Hellenistic Jews. And then most of the Jews despised the Gentiles. And the certainly, uh, I mean, the Samaritans, they were just untouchables. And that's just the Jewish world. Now let's go into the Gentile world. <laughs> The Gentiles certainly didn't. They weren't too fond of the Jews, were they? The Gentiles weren't too fond of the Jews. And the Gentiles were having a lot of troubles among themselves as well. You know, they're all bickering. You know, isn't that the way it still is today? Isn't the whole world just a big mess? Yeah. Well, that's the world that Jesus came into and said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And what was the reaction of Moses' brethren at his first attempt, his first visit to deliver them from their bondage and to alleviate their suffering and to bring peace to one another. What was their reaction? Well, it was the same reaction that Jesus received on his first, first visit to his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own, you say it, received him not. Likely they would do... Um, like they would do when the Lord came, the Hebrews thrust Moses out from among them, saying, Who made thee to be a ruler and a judge over us? And who do you think you are? You're going to judge us? You're going to rule over us? They had enmity toward him, didn't they? Maybe they envied his fine Egyptian clothing. 
Well, I doubt he went out to visit them with fine Egyptian clothing because he'd already, you know, chosen to be one of them rather than, but all those years, for 40 years, they would have looked at him in the palace and said, who does he think he is? We know who he is. We know Mary and Joseph are his parents. Whoops, wrong ones. We know Amram and Jochebed, I did that on purpose, are his parents. But see the same thing over and over again? And they envied him, his position. We know he's just a slave like us. Who does he think he is running around in his Mercedes chariot? <laughs> and so they envied him, as the patriarchs had envied Joseph. And as Stephen's audience had envied Jesus. We know they envied Jesus. Because Pilate even knew they envied Jesus. They certainly misunderstood him. Moses' people misunderstood him, thinking that he had only emerged from his royal position to lord it over them and to judge them. They didn't realize that Moses had become, come as one of them. He had come as one of them, voluntarily, to be one of them in order to do what? To save them, exactly. Well, following the sarcastic question, who do you think you are, came an ominous threat from the Hebrew who had been doing wrong to his neighbor. With sneering sarcasm, he says, or he asks Moses, wilt thou kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Now, Stephen... Remember, this is all about Stephen's message. Okay, so back to Stephen. My mind is just all... But Stephen is getting warmer and warmer in, in hitting a raw nerve with his listeners. You know, the further he gets into this sermon, the more it's starting to compute. So he's getting really close to, you know, being warm with these guys. He's showing them how their forefathers had rejected and treated their past deliverers. First Joseph... And then Moses, on both occasions of their first visits to them, surely at least some of those council members were beginning to see the resemblance with what they had just done to Jesus, who very much was like unto Moses. So now let's look at the fast vanish of Moses. We looked at the first visit of Moses, the fast vanish, just verse 29 of Acts 7, and then again we'll flip over to uh, Exodus 2. Acts 7.29, it says, Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Madian, it's really Midian, where he begat two sons. Sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? Two sons. All right, now Exodus chapter 2. Would you look with me at verses 16 to well, let me actually start back in 15 where it says, um, when Moses, uh, Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Oh, that is so interesting. Make sure you read your notes when you get them later today, because that sitting at the well is so similar what, to what Jesus did in John chapter 4, excuse me, with the Samaritan woman. And here's going to be dealing with women again. Samaritans were part Gentile and part Jewish. The Midianites were part Jewish and part Jewish. There's a lot of similarities, but that sat down by a well is interesting. Verse 16, now the priest, and that's the word Kohen, Kohen, from which we get priest. Um, and that's why if a Jewish person is named Kohen, you know he's from the tribe of Levi. That's a dead guy. They're the only ones who know what tribe definitely they came from. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up 
and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they, the daughters, said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he, their father, said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Now we know that he also uh, went on to have another son um, later on. Um, So Israel's first offer by her God-assigned deliverer was postponed. It was postponed. Because the people did not want Moses meddling in their affairs. Isn't that exactly what's happened with Israel? They could have been delivered long ago, but they didn't want Jesus meddling in their affairs. And so the whole thing has been postponed. Although they were under intense oppression, they were slaves. Yet apparently, they preferred the status quo. So God left them to their burdens and afflictions. Jesus came to Israel. The Jews. But didn't they like their status quo? Isn't that why Caiaphas says it's expedient for us that he die, one man die for the nation, so we can keep on keeping on with the status quo? Moses disappeared. He just disappeared from their sight. Vanished. But God would not abandon the Hebrew people. He wouldn't abandon them because he had made a promise, and he always keeps his promises. He had promised Abraham the land for his descendants, and he had promised Israel's deliverance from her bondage to Egypt. And he would keep his promise, so he would resend Moses to them. And the second time of his visitation to Israel, she would accept him as her deliverer. Well, with his sudden realization that his murder of the Egyptian the day before was widely known, Moses was forced to leave. Because when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. Now, he didn't leave because he feared the Pharaoh. It says he feared over in Exodus, but he didn't fear the Pharaoh. He feared for his own people and he fled for the sake of his own people. We know he did not fear the Pharaoh because Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 11.27 says this, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who was invisible. When he left Egypt, he was trusting in God, the invisible God. He was trusting God. He didn't fear the Pharaoh. He left for his people's sake. Now, his brothers, you notice, wouldn't stand up for him. His own Jewish brothers would not stand up for him. In fact, it must have been his own brothers who betrayed him to the Pharaoh. How else would the Pharaoh have heard that he had killed an Egyptian? How else? Remember Moses looked this way and that, made sure there were no Egyptians watching him when he killed that taskmaster and hit him in the sand? The only ones who saw him do that he didn't think would ever squeal on him because they were his brothers. But they must have. His own brothers betrayed him to the Pharaoh. So he left not only his people Israel, but he left Egypt, the world, as the Lord, when betrayed and rejected by his own, not only left Israel, but he left this world. Moses would begin a new phase of his life with Gentiles. 
He went to seek other sheep, not of the fold of Israel. He went to people in a dry desert land who were thirsty, and they knew they were thirsty, and they were readily accepting of his deliverance work. Is this not beautiful? Are you not being blessed by typology? I sure am, and I've been studying it and studying it. I'm still getting goosebumps up here. (laughs) Now, Stephen, notice, we had to get the full report about the deliverance of the seven daughters of um, the priest of Midian from Exodus, didn't we? If you look at Stephen's sermon, he skips this. He skips, he's talking to the Sanhedrin council, he skips mentioning the deliverance work of Moses in a Gentile land. Now, why do you think he didn't mention this? I'll tell you why. His listeners were not even ready to accept Jesus as the one who had come to deliver them. Much less were they ready to receive the truth that Jesus had also come, their Messiah had also come to deliver Gentiles. So he skips this. However, from the account in Exodus, we learn that Moses dwelt in the land of Midian. He sat down on a well where he soon delivered the seven daughters of the Midian chief, Reuel. Now, some of you who know your Bibles have said, I thought that the father-in-law of Moses was named after a Beverly hillbilly. (laughs) Jethro. Well, Jethro was his title. I'm sorry, Jethro means, Jethro means Cohen. I got that wrong. Jethro is Cohen. That's a title. Priest, Reuel. Reuel was his given name. Jethro was his title. The Bible, you know, gives us both names. So um, he sat down at a well. He soon delivers the seven daughters of, of Jethro, Reuel, from self-centered, false shepherds who had driven them from the watering well. Now, I say they were false shepherds because a true shepherd loves the sheep, whether they're of his flock or somebody else's flock. Doesn't matter. A true shepherd loves sheep. These were false shepherds because they only wanted to water their own sheep. Now, we read that Moses was content dwelling in the land of the Midians. And the Midian chief gave his daughter Zipporah for Moses to wed. So just like Joseph, Moses had a Gentile bride. Just like Abraham also had a Gentile bride. And by her, he brought forth new sons to glory. And those sons were part Jewish and part Gentile. She represents the church, right? The Gentile bride. But the Gentile bride is also made up of Jewish people. Part Jewish, part Gentile. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So in the first three actions of Moses that are given to us in Exodus. We find that, number one, he came to emancipate his people from slavery to Egypt, the world. He also came to reconcile brother to brother. And third, he came to make available the water of life. Mm, How perfect. Jesus, like unto Moses. For the next 40 years of his life, Moses who had learned to be a somebody in Egypt. He was being groomed to be a somebody, wasn't he, in the palace. He learned to be a somebody, but he willingly chose not to be. He could have been a somebody, but he chose not to be a somebody. Now, for the next 40 years, he was going to experientially learn how to be content being a nobody. 
Are you content being a nobody? If you are, that's good. Because God takes content nobodies and makes them into somebodies. <laughs> so for the next 40 years, he's going to be content being a nobody, tending to the flock of his father-in-law at the backside of the desert. I mean, you can't get any more nobody than that. And it wasn't again until the end of that next 40-year period of his life, when that period was at a close, that Moses was mightily recompensed for his self-denial of all that Egypt had offered him in temptation. He was going to be brought onto holy ground. And where was that holy ground, by the way? Was it in Israel? Was it in Jerusalem? No. The Sinai Peninsula of all places. He was brought onto holy ground where he knew face to face the great and mighty I am that I am. And that will be, Lord willing, our lesson next week. I'm already getting excited about it. So what is Stephen's underlying message to the Jews of his days, of his day? Essentially, this is what he's saying. Again, between the lines, but they're getting it. He's saying, unless you guys want to continue to follow the pattern of your forefathers who betrayed and rejected the very ones God providentially raised from death, to be their princes, and to be their deliverers, i.e. Joseph and Moses, you will repent for having done the exact same thing with Jesus. Unless you want to follow their pattern, you better repent. You say you honor Moses, who was rejected by his own generation, but you reject the one like unto him who came in your own generation. In betraying him, and thrusting him from yourselves, you have actually proven that he is the fulfiller of all that Moses and the law pictured. By thrusting him out, you've proven he is like unto Moses, because that's exactly what your forefathers did with Moses. So Stephen is saying, do not continually continue to willfully close your eyes against the light of truth that I am trying to show you. These historical figures were given to you, Israel, so that you could know the true Messiah when he came. Take heed, therefore, of your envious and willful rejection of him because it is yet not too late to receive him. We've said this before, but what if those leaders of Israel had repented, even at this sermon, if they had repented of what they had done to their Messiah? and fallen on their faces and worshipped him, what would he from heaven have done? He would have, yes, he would have forgiven them, just like Joseph. He would have kissed them and embraced them, and he would have come back, and they would have had the kingdom. He was basically saying, do not be left to die in slavery to your sin and death, as your forefathers who died in Egypt between the two advents of Moses. Think about that. They thrust him out. So there were many, many Israelites who died before Moses came back 40 years later, right? Many, many Jewish people in the postponement period have died without knowing their Savior. And that is so sad. So sad. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray for the salvation of his people. And thank God that there was that postponement period where... 
he married his Gentile bride. Yes, <laughs> glad the plan included us. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how exciting it is when we see all the pictures. We're your children, and you have drawn us so many pictures. It's a picture book, and it's so alive and so vivid and so clear. And I just wish that we could make it more clear to more people that this sanctuary would be overflowing with young women who could teach this to their children and their older women who could teach it to their grandchildren and just get the whole country and the world excited for you because you alone deserve the praise and the honor and the glory and the majesty and the dominion forever and ever. And we love you and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.